Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, everyone, we're back here with a much better host today. We kicked out Manuel. I'm joking. We didn't kick out Manuel. Manuel was a little bit of his vacation. You know, he has to get a little bit of vacation after the transfer season is done. The dude hasn't slept for weeks. So I'm your host, Filippo Silva here. Today we have Adrian and Josh with me. Adrian, let's start with you. How are you doing? I'm doing well, man. Yeah, Filippo is uh, is the new host today. We'll see how he does. He's, this is a little loan transfer in on the hosting duty, so we'll see how he does. But uh, I think he's going to kill it, man. And Manuel, you know, we miss him, but he's off getting that much-deserved rest. I think he's actually not even really resting. I think he's hitting the slope somewhere in BC. I think he's doing a little bit of skiing. So hopefully he's staying safe out there, and we'll have him back next week, hopefully, man. Yeah, we're going to demote Manuel to assistant to the host, not the assistant host, assistant to the host. But Josh, what about you? you you're you probably a little bit happy, right, with Dortmund? Well, okay, let me fix that. You're definitely not happy with Dortmund in terms of results, but you're used to that by now. But transfers, quite a surprise, right? Yeah, I am have a real roller coaster of a couple uh couple days i guess there but we'll uh we'll get into a little bit more but uh i, I know emmanuel's gonna be listening he's gonna be super annoyed because he gave us one rule about doing this podcast without him and it was to not let filippo host so I, I think he's gonna be a little confused how you somehow roped it in there but i'm doing good filippo hope you hopefully you are as well and hopefully Manuel's enjoying uh whistler i believe that's where he's uh relaxing right now yeah we don't go we don't follow standard rules here uh, we just kind of just happened. But Manuel, please forgive us for that. But everyone, today we're going to talk about the CONCACAF Roundup, the AFCON. We're going to talk about the FIFA Club World Cup, Dortmund transfers. We're going to get Josh's take on that. And then we'll dive into the Barcelona-Atletico Madrid game over the weekend. That was pretty damn good. So the CONCACAF Roundup. I think our main focus here will be the United States and Canada. Before I talk about the United States, I wanted to go to Adrian here. And look... Um, Canadian soccer seems to have arrived, right? I know maybe it's just a moment. Canada could go down or up, but Canada is pretty much set for the Qatar World Cup and they're already qualified to 2026. How are you feeling about that, Adrian? It's a pretty good moment to be a Canadian soccer fan. Lucky. Yeah. yeah, of course it is. Of course it is. I mean, I think I did a video like two years ago when Canada beat the US in Toronto saying like, you know, this is an emerging nation in football and to see them actually continue on that trajectory and go way beyond I think anyone's real or like true expectations is amazing to see and like you said about the 2026 World Cup we always had that to look forward to like yes guaranteed we'll get to see Canada in a World Cup but to be able to 
being a World Cup based on merit prior to that is just an incredible feeling. And not just to d- qualify, but to qualify in this manner, you know, still undefeated, setting records as far as I think they're the first nation to ever go six matches, one in a row or something like that since 1997 or something. I can't remember the exact stats. Josh will have those for you. But just to see what John Herdman is doing with his Canadian side, what he's already done with the women's side as well in Canadian soccer. I think that, uh, you know, get this man in the Hall of Fame already because he's completely changed the entire program on both sides. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really excited. Like all Canadians right now, we're all just looking forward to that next window. And for me especially, watching Portugal has become horrible, horrible to watch. They might not even make it to the World Cup. But Canada, I actually look forward to international breaks because of Canada and because of this team, because of how united they are. You know, you see all those videos behind the scenes. You see them celebrating every goal, just like empties the bench completely to go and celebrate every goal. You know, it's just, it's a joy to watch. It's a ton of fun. And on top of that, the results are great. Not just that, before I bring him to Josh, one thing about Canada, the only thing I would be worried about if I was a Canadian fan is the group stage draw because we don't know what pot Canada will be. So that could be tough. But if they get a reasonable group, or even if they get a tough group, we could see Canada go past the group stage. And it's an exciting team. Now, how far they can go in the World Cup, who knows? Uh, The World Cup's a different beast when compared to CONCACAF. Josh, what about you? Now, talk about the stats there that Adrian just mentioned. Yeah, I mean, it, it is incredible what John Herdman's been doing, and, and Adrian knows, just, just like I do, what it was like being a, a fan of the sport in this country for, for a long time and not even re- realizing that our, our national team was playing from time to time. I mean, I, I'm assuming we always did, but a lot of a lot of maybe neutrals out there didn't really really notice, but now this is really one over the country. But they've, they've been on an incredible run. They've, they started, and it was interesting, because they started a little little lackluster at the start of the windows where they would draw the first couple games and then they would then they would win ones because they started with one win four draws so they it, it was one of those moments where it's like okay well they need to win their next match to have a chance because these draws are starting to pile up and then they went on six consecutive wins they've had i think three yeah three consecutive clean sheets they've been have the best attack the best defense they are, it's, it's truly an incredible story and and I don't think anyone before this World Cup qualifying window would have predicted Canada first. I know a lot of us thought they'd be right in around that third to fourth spot. They're an exciting group. But to do it the way that they did, to do it this convincingly, to take eight points from, from the U.S. and Mexico, it really shows kind of the collective of this group. And you, you hear the word brotherhood a lot. And and it's very interesting because it, I always say that this this side plays like a club side. They play like they recognize each other. They play the, like they've been playing and training with each other every single day. And it shows because they seem up for it every single time so far. Every time a, a hurdle comes their way, John Herman finds a way to do it, whether it's Mexico at home, Mexico away, U.S. at home, U.S. away, going to Central America. It, it's it's quite the story. And I think with the stats, there's a way that Canada could lose all three of their next uh, World Cup qualifying matches and still qualify second or third. I think Felipe was talking about that. There's a way that they could lose, obviously, the first one and, and clinch uh, the World Cup. So... The percentage, I think, was 99.7% chance they qualify for the World Cup. So it's it's pretty exciting times, and it's and it's proud to be a Canadian right now and following this, this side. Yeah, for them not to make it to the World Cup, they would have to lose all the games, and there's still a combination of results that would have to happen for them not to make it. So I'm just going to say that Canada's in the World Cup. And when, now we're going to move on, still in CONCACAF, but to the United States. And I want to point out one thing you said. 
You just mentioned about how the players seem to trust what Herdman says. So Herdman has his tactics and he changes it depending on the opponent. And you can see the Canadian players trust what Herdman tells them to do for each game. And it, it has been working. On the other hand, we have the United States with Mr. Burhalter, which it doesn't seem to be the same, right? It seems like the United States has a coach that has more to work with than John Herdman and has been accomplishing less in terms of World Cup qualifying. So I could talk about the United States, but first I wanted to get your quick thoughts on this. The United States next window has the toughest window of the top five teams. We play uh, Costa Rica away in the last game. We play first Mexico at Mexico, and then we play Panama at home, which is not an easy game by any means. Quick question, you guys, and then I'll talk about the U.S. Does the United States make it to the World Cup, or are we seeing Cuba 2017 happen all over again? Um, Adrian or Joshua wants to take on first. They're going to make the World Cup. Um, I, I'm pretty confident looking at them that the U.S. will have enough in them, that Mexico will have enough. Canada, like we've already talked about, basically qualified. I think Panama and Costa Rica will, will both drop a good chunk of points in this next window, and it's going to be close between those two to go for fourth. But, I mean, as long I mean, as long as Greg does the bare minimum, which he's kind of been doing given uh, this this run so far, because I, I did expect a little bit more from them, and, and this is just coming from a Canadian Okasai perspective, but... I mean, after the, the the misery of 2018, I expected this this group to really find a way to get it done a little bit more convincingly than the way that they did. But regardless, the goal was to make it, and I think that they're definitely on track to do so. And I I wouldn't lose too much sleep, but obviously because 2018 is hanging over your shoulder, it is very nerve wracking for some of U.S. national team fans. But I, I think there's a very good chance they're going to make it. I would be amazed if they didn't make it. You know, you could maybe speak to something going on with the mental side of this group and, you know, having those flashbacks to 2018, if that's going to be enough to shake them. And if they lose that first match away to Mexico, what does that do to their mental and their strength as far as, as far as that goes? But yeah, I think like Josh said, just doing the bare minimum, you know, getting one win from three or something like that. I think that you guys could probably get through. I, like I said, I would be amazed if you guys didn't make it. Um, But yeah, Filippo, I think you're going to be fine. I don't think that we'll be able to, to cook you too much this time. I think you guys are going to be able to make it. Yeah, and just to add one thing to the American viewers, I'm not going to go too much into my opinions because I'm a host today and I have to behave. But here's the situation in the United States. If the United States beats Panama at home in the second game, Panama mathematically can no longer reach the U.S., which only leaves Costa Rica to knock the U.S. out of the top three, which means Costa Rica would have to get a nine-point window to knock out the U.S. So... For the Americans, unless you think we can't beat Panama at home and you think that Costa Rica can get nine points in this window, we should be fine. All right. That's the scenario that we don't make it if we win at home. I personally think we should be able to beat Panama at home. It should be an obligation. Play your best players and beat Panama at home. With that said, do we think Costa Rica is going to get nine points this window? I I don't think so. Um, I mean, they could, but I don't think they're one zero merchants at this point. But yeah, let's move on from the CONCACAF roundup. That's pretty much all we're going to dive into. And this one, I'm going to hand it much more to you guys here. Uh, Senegal, they've won uh, the African Cup of Nations, all right, for the first time in their history. And we don't follow African soccer as much, I would say. I think all of us and even European fans and, and CONCACAF fans and South American fans, but this Senegal team is stacked, man. 
Did you you guys probably saw it? I wasn't that much aware of it until I started watching their games. And Adrian or Josh, who watched the final, who followed through with it, this is a stacked team on paper, at least. Yeah, it, it is, and it's a cool story because I mean, if you're a neutral, which I kind of am uh, in terms of of the AFCON, you you really want to see a, a a cool story like that. Now, it's funny when you say a neutral, you kind of want to see the underdog story. Senegal by far were not the underdogs. If you look at that squad, I think you, I think they were favorites going in. I think you could argue that they have the the best squad from back to front, and it was on display. I mean, Kubali, Dalio, they got players from PSG, Napoli, Liverpool. Everton, I'm trying to think of that midfield. Kuate, Gay, no, Gay was at Everton. He went to PSG. Regardless, they still had a very stacked team. Edward Mendy, obviously one of the best keepers in the world right now at at Chelsea. But they found a way to to not be able to to do it because the African Cup nation comes around every two years. They've never won it before, and they made it to the final last year. They slipped up against a very good Algeria side as well, and it kind of seemed in this match like it was going to go the same. Sadio Mane had a very early penalty. He missed it. You could kind of tell the nerves were coming in for a while there for for Senegal. It was like, oh man, is it going to happen? Is this is this going to be a repeat of of the last Afcon? And they eventually, in penalties, found a way against the best keeper in the tournament by far. And of course, it came down. I thought it was a, f- a fairy tale story, and it doesn't. It, it takes a lot of balls to miss a penalty like that early on, knowing you probably could have relaxed the nerves and and played out that that result to then step up again, bury it with conviction, same side and. It just it was written in the stars. Sadio Mane had to be the man to take that last penalty and put Senegal through it. And another cool thing I like to see with with um, national teams, especially from Africa, is the fact that their manager is from Senegal as well. There's a lot of different managers from different nationalities, which there's nothing wrong with. But I thought it was a cool story for him as well. And I, I was I was smiles after the game, seeing the celebrations. Uh, yeah. Adrian, oh. can I just add one thing? Sorry, it's um just Josh. And the the funny part was. Mo Salah was the last one to take for was gonna be the last one to take for Egypt, right? In this game from the list, um, but we didn't get there. But yeah, Adrian, uh, go ahead. Yeah, and it's just further proof that you need to put your best shooters from like two to four in your shootout list. But anyway, speaking of being the last shooter, the what makes it even better for Senegal is that Alio Cisse, the manager for Senegal, he actually missed the decisive penalty in two thousand and two in the final shootout against Cameroon. So for him to then coach this team to the final and then they win it in a shootout is just, you know, it's one of those things that you can't really write. So that was great to see. But yeah, I think that Senegal were definitely deserved winners. I had the unfortunate, uh, <laughs> I watched almost every single Egypt match throughout the throughout the knockout stages and they went to extra time every single time. They were laborious to watch. And I drew a lot of parallels to Euro 2016 and watching Portugal. This felt like a very Fernando Santos type of approach from Carlos Queiroz. Funnily enough, he's also Portuguese, the manager for Egypt. So I was drawing a lot of parallels there, even in the final with Senegal dominating. I don't know how many balls went through the six yard box that were unchallenged or just flew under the leg of a Senegal attacker or or uh, Grabowski would be able to, you know, cut off the cross or make it an insane save. I thought that he was the best player in the match and he obviously got the man of the match. So that was very much deserving. So it was really fun to see. Um, but it did feel like Egypt were Portugal and France were Senegal in this case. For any of you who didn't actually watch this final, just look to Euro 2016. Senegal were dominant and uh, Egypt were very much on the back foot trying to steal something. But it was definitely a tournament to forget for uh, Mohamed Salah. Not much going on for him. He felt a little bit isolated up front, but uh, Senegal, I think, you know, 
as we said, deserving winners. Great to see Ali Osise, an African manager, getting the win because a lot of these other nations, like Josh said, have managers from Portugal, from the Netherlands, from Brazil, wherever. So, yeah, great to see that. And uh, a really entertaining final in some ways, if a little bit slow at times. Yeah, let's stay a little bit more in the AFCON here. So very often we see African nations with a lot of talent uh, underachieve in the World Cup. I think it's a fair statement. Would you guys agree that they very often have underachieved? So with that said, my main question here is this. Um, Well, Senegal has to go through Egypt, I believe, to make it to the World Cup. So that means one of them will likely not be there. I think it's actually confirmed by now that one of them won't make it because they're going to face each other in the last playoff. And there's other very talented African nations. Uh, Could we see in the Qatar World Cup, uh, maybe a little bit due to weather or because the talent might be higher than it was before, even though we've seen some very strong African nations in the past as well. Could we finally see an African nation make a deep run? That has happened in the past, but could we see this happen in this World Cup? I think there's a chance. I mean, when, when I think back, um, like my favorite, personally, my favorite World Cup to watch, and I know it was a bit of disaster for several different reasons, but it, it was the 2010 one, Johannesburg. I just, I love, I love seeing the matches. I love seeing the fans. And because it was held in Africa, there was a, there was a favorite and it, I was, I was gutted when they weren't able to do it. And that was Ghana and Ghana should have, and I'm putting the quotations up, made it to a semifinals, which would have been a huge accomplishment. Luis Suarez, obviously with the, the famous, uh, handball on the line but if that would have went in that would have won the match and then if, even if that didn't win in there was a penalty right after that was missed so that was a fairy tale story that was such a unique team to watch and in my opinion this Senegal team has got way way more talent than that Ghana team did back in uh, 2010 and there shouldn't be a reason especially now they're picking up the the motivation and the confidence of winning the AFCON finally this, this team has got a lot to them like we've already talked about the super superpowers on this this side, and if they can find a good run of form, there's no reason to think that this team can't make a quarterfinal appearance. Yeah, this Senegal side, they have talent all over the park, and like we mentioned earlier, Edouard Mendy, probably, you know, top two to three keepers in the world right now. They have Koulibaly, one of the best central defenders in the world who had an absolute monster tournament, one of the greatest, uh, greatest captain performances I've seen in a final and in the semis, etc. So... I wouldn't be surprised if they make a good run. They have good midfield. They have an excellent attacker, obviously, in Sadio Mane, who looks like he was very much in form. You know, he did fail to convert that penalty earlier, but you got to give some some credit to Grabowski for saving it. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if Senegal make it a lot further. They were a bit of a disappointment at the 2018 World Cup because they were getting some hype then. And I think that they've really grown into themselves under Elio Cisse now as well. So I wouldn't be surprised if they make it further than uh, than a lot of people suspect. Now, Africa has five spots, right, for the World Cup, AFCON. And right now, they're going to have their playoffs next month. And these are the following matchups, which means for each matchup, one team won't make it. Algeria will be playing Cameroon, okay? So one of them won't make it. Nigeria versus Ghana. Morocco versus Congo. Tunisia versus Mali. And then this matchup right here, the final, Senegal and Egypt. That means Senegal or Egypt, one of them won't be in the 2022 World Cup. Now on to another kind of football. The moment we've been waiting for since September is finally here. In honor of the big game, DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of Super Bowl 56, is giving new customers 56 to 1 odds on either team. Bet just $5 and get 280 in free bets if your team wins. 
DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in New York, meaning you can bet from almost a third of the country. If Sportsbook isn't in your state yet, play DraftKings Daily Fantasy Football Contest for Super Bowl 56. New customers can get a free shot at a $1 million top prize with their first deposit. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app, use promo code TPPN, and get 56 to 1 odds on either team. Bet just $5 and get 280 in free bets if your team wins. That's promo code TPPN at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of Super Bowl 56. 21 plus. Minimum age and location requirements vary by jurisdiction. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for full list of requirements and state-specific responsible gambling resources. Void were prohibited. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In Tennessee, call or text the Tennessee Red Line. 1-800-889-9789. In Connecticut, call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369. All right, so we'll keep an eye on that. I actually think that this could be a World Cup where we get some surprises. I've, I've been talking about this for a while. I think the conditions, right, the weather is going to be a little bit different. It's a different World Cup, different time of the season. Instead of being in the off season, the summer that the players are finished, it's going to be in the middle of the season. I think it can be a different World Cup from in the past in terms of the form each players will be. We could see some under. I think it's the World Cup we might see the most underdogs. That's essentially what I'm saying. A few surprises. And as I've said many times, I I personally think the champion is going to be Brazil or Argentina. Um, we can dive into that in a different episode. So moving on here, we're going to touch upon this very quickly. This might be a topic I might talk about a little bit more. I know you guys follow it, but you don't care as much. The FIFA Club World Cup will end this week. They're currently, at the time that we're recording this, the semifinals will be played. Palmeiras will be playing today and Chelsea will be playing tomorrow. The other teams, I don't know them very well. Palmeiras will be playing Awali today. And with that said, this is a pretty big deal for Palmeiras, right? In Brazil, the Club World Cup is taken very seriously. Last year, Palmeiras was a complete embarrassment, losing in the semifinals. And it's a big national joke that a Brazilian giant like Palmeiras that has won everything multiple times has never won a FIFA Club World Cup. As a matter of fact, Palmeiras has played the FIFA World Cup at this point. This is the third time they're playing it. Palmeiras has never scored a goal in a FIFA Club World Cup, all right? Even last year when they played weaker teams, right? Not even playing the European side. I wanted to hear you guys' thoughts real quick before I dive into it because I'm definitely following it closer. Any of you followed the FIFA Club World Cup? Yeah, I mean, I do like to check in on it, especially because it's always interesting to see what, you know, the top dogs of every other continent are able to do up against the European size. Now, Chelsea, as you know, actually lost to one of your rivals, Corinthians, back in the 2012 Club World Cup. So they absolutely will be going into this, taking it seriously, for one, and wanting to get that first Club World Cup title for themselves. And it's going to be interesting because Chelsea is coming into this, you know, if I was Palmeiras, and you know this better than anyone else, Filippo, of course, with Abel Ferreira and his style of play, he likes to sit deep and he'll try to frustrate Chelsea. And Chelsea have an issue with their attack at the moment. Now, Hakim Ziyech did, of course, put in a great performance against Plymouth recently in the FA Cup, but that is Plymouth, so take from that what you will. But the attack in general this season 
has been misfiring. You know, when they're missing guys like Reese James and Ben Chilwell, that's where a lot of their attack comes from. Um, then their attack has been suffering because the strikers, you know, Lukaku, Werner, Havertz just haven't been performing, haven't been putting up the numbers that they should be. So it's going to be interesting. And I would not be surprised if Chelsea was on the wrong end of an upset once again, just because of how this Abel Ferreira figure likes to play. Yeah, and before I bring in Josh too, because I know he follows the Club World Cup, he actually follows Brazilian soccer much more than the average Canadian. But but it is a it, that could happen, right? Um, we know Abel Ferreira has absolutely no shame on, even though Palmeiras has a lot of quality on putting all eleven players in the box and just low blocking and bunkering the heck out of the game. He has no shame. That's how he won the final, right? Of the the, the Libertadores playing against a superior team in Flamengo. And it's funny because we did a preview in your channel, remember, Adrian? And I literally said, that's how the game's probably going to go. It's going to be Flamengo completely dominating the possession, creating, and uh, Palmeiras just like bunkering and countering. And that's exactly what happened in the game. Now, just one thing to make it clear. Palmeiras and Chelsea at the time of this recording still have to win their semifinal matchups, okay? So that could also be an upset that could happen. Uh, we're just assuming they're in the final, but nothing's guaranteed in soccer. Probably the most underdog sports in sports history. But Josh, what are your thoughts on this FIFA Club World Cup? Are you going to be watching it? Yeah, I, I will more than likely watch probably both semis in the finals. I usually do each year. Uh, it's an interesting tournament is because you take the the champions league of the respective regions and you put them all together and it's just a big somewhat underdog story of david versus goliath just because the european champions are expected to win most of the times they do but we like we've talked about corinthians when that incredible performance against chelsea a really disappointing chelsea side that year uh and i think there's a chance that this year that palmeiras can do something because they've been a they've been a good team and they've been a tournament type team and the fact that you just talked about how they won the final, there's a good opportunity that they know how important this is. They want to win it. They they have their rivals who've already won one. This this is what matters. And it's it's funny because two like a South American side like Palmeiras, Corinthians, whoever it may be, this this matters a lot. And I've I've heard it just I have a couple of Brazilian friends as well who who've told me years ago that that they they hold it over us because they've won it, we haven't. Where if Chelsea doesn't win, I mean they're expected to win. It'd be a disappointment. It's not like the end of the world. This isn't what they want more than anything so I, it makes it the competition a little interesting but there is still pressure on Chelsea they're expected to win it's it's a disappointment that they didn't and they're the, probably the number one European side you're going to see in probably recent time and future time who has this type of expectation because they lost one already so I think it's gonna be an interesting little tournament I do hope it's gonna be a Palmeiras and a uh, Chelsea final so if it is a Palmeiras and Chelsea final this might be the FIFA Club World Cup that has the most in stakes because Chelsea as you both already pointed out they lost the Corinthians in 2012, and that does bug them. It's a title they don't have, so they most certainly have the pressure of winning it. Plus, it's a trophy. In terms of Palmeiras, the pressure is huge, right? Because the joke in Brazil for Palmeiras is that they don't win the Copinha, which they just won, the U20 tournament we talked about here in the podcast, the biggest U20 tournament in Brazil, and maybe even one of the biggest in the world. Uh, they never won it before, but this year, they finally won, led by Endrick that we talked about, that big prospect coming out of Palmeiras that could be the next big thing out of Brazil that clubs want to buy him, 15-year-old. So for Palmeiras, this is the only title that this club has never won. They've won every single title possible in Brazil multiple times, but they still get picked upon by their rivals because every single rival from Palmeiras has won 
the FIFA Club World Cup. Santos has won it during the Pele days. Corinthians against Chelsea, as we said. Sao Paulo has won it in the 90s and 2000s. Palmeiras hasn't. So if the final is Palmeiras and Chelsea, it is a game to watch out for. It'll be lots of fun. Well, it'll be lots of fun, but Adrian and Josh, you guys follow the Palmeiras. Palmeiras is very much capable of making the game as boring as it can be, right? Those Portuguese managers, Adrian. All right. So now, Josh, uh, we talked about it briefly in the beginning about how Dortmund, result-wise, once again, didn't look good against Leverkusen. I was happy that Giovanni Reyna was back. And to be honest, for someone that hasn't played in months, looked pretty sharp for someone that hasn't played in three to four months. But with that said, there was one win for Dortmund this weekend is they signed a player from Bayern. Yeah, I mean, there was also little videos going around of Gio nutmegging Mats Hummels, and he was looking pretty fresh in training, so that had to have been exciting for some of the U.S. national team fans. But yeah, I mean, one of the most disappointing performances you're going to see for, for a while. It was it was just horrible. And and it's funny, and I'll, I'll kind of give my theory. I'm not saying this is by any stretch true, even though I think there's a good chance that it is. But they got humiliated at home in a 5-2 defeat, which highlighted how poor this defense is, how poor this team is structured. They were second best for the majority of the matches. They were shooting themselves in the foot left, right, and center. Dan Oxlil-Zagadou has been a train wreck pretty much since he's joined this club. And he just, it's kind of what you expect. He's got a mistake in him every single match. And on Twitter, I mean, I just got back from my crew, so I, I wasn't uh, I wasn't covering the match. I was just kind of enjoying it by myself and I thought I was going to. So my Twitter was lighting up. It was just a dark place for BBB fans, which, I mean, once they lose, it usually is. But this was just such a humiliating loss, and it highlighted so many poor things around this club that a lot of them wanted answers. And I personally think that, well, I don't, I don't know. We'll read you some quotes here, and you guys can be the judge for it for yourself. But social media is going just absolutely wild. And then they announced the signing of Sula, and it kind of came out of absolutely nowhere. And the funny thing is, is it says, and this is from BBB News Blog, um, really respected account on Twitter and it says that uh, that Dorman had actually not planned to announce the transfer of Nicolas Sula on Monday, uh, but they were caught off guard by the media reports that an agreement has been reached. So that to me says, huh, our fans are livid. They're just losing their crap. Let's, let's, we have this in our back pocket. Let's just drop it now. And ever since they did, I mean, I think it's a stroke of genius because Twitter on, on BVB side has been a blessing. I'm waking up in the morning and I'm just looking at tweets being like, can't believe Sula's ours. Big move, big club. This is massive. This is the shift we need. League just became more open, yada, yada, yada. It's like that 5-2 loss never happened. But it's a it's a very interesting transfer. Nico Sula, usually, I mean, when you see a Bayern player go to Dortmund, it's it's good so when he's not played well. It's Hummels kind of towards the later years of his career but Nicholas Sula is right in his prime he's exactly what this club needs and just a couple tweets about it as as said uh, basically he's he signed a, a just a little over a 10 million deal it says that he signed till 2026 and he will earn just under 10 million euros per year and he tends to lean towards um the fact that it's not going to hurt Dortmund's transfer structure which I think is pretty interesting to state and and yeah, I mean it's just it's just a massive move, and it says that he felt underappreciated at Bayern, that he's excited to come to Dortmund, that he's really excited and loves the look of of the yellow wall, and he said all the right things, and I'm really excited to get him. This is a big statement from Dortmund. 
So a couple, this is one thing that might interest U.S. men's national team fans. I wanted to get you and Adrian's um, opinion on this real quick. Chris Richards is on a loan from Hoffenheim. With them losing Sully, could that open up a space for Richards next season to actually return to Bayern? He's been doing well at Hoffenheim. It, it, it could. I mean, yeah, I, I, I think it depends on how some of the other center backs are going to perform. I mean, they have Hernandez there. They have Povard, and I'm doing it in the quotations because he plays mostly as a right back. Uh, Upamakano as well, but this is this is a loss. If if Bayern don't feel like splashing or they want to put money elsewhere, there's an opportunity they could look like, all right, Richards is playing at a competitive level. Hoffenheim have a good chance to qualify for the Champions League this year. Let's get this kid in, especially if they're going to play a back three, which Nagelsmann likes to have in his back pocket, Put push Davies a little bit up, sometimes put Gnabry out at the right wing back. There's an opportunity that they will need an extra body. So as a U.S. men's national team, there's no reason to think not. But at the same time, knowing that Bayern may want to put a statement out there, it wouldn't surprise me either if they got went in there and made some type of transfer to bring in another center-back target. So Josh, as someone who really follows the Bundesliga closely, you obviously saw Niklas Sula rise from Hoffenheim. He made that switch over to Bayern. Um, and he's had a little bit of injury plagues every once in a while, but he's still capped regularly with Germany when he's healthy. He could be a very effective player. Um, some say that he's a little bit slow at times, that he could be exposed by you know fast attackers, etc. So what do you think he's going to bring to this back line? And do you think that this is enough? Do you think that this is the answer to all of your issues in defense or does more work still need to be done? Oh man, it's not even close to being the answer. This team is constructed so poorly and I've talked about it for a while now, but it's been really on display this year because it's not, I mean, we are having a disastrous season getting crashed out of the Champions League, losing out in the Pokal, knowing that Bayern was already out. We're in the Europa League right now. We're nine points off the, I mean, it's just, it's a very mediocre season. But if you look at this team, you need to back the manager. And if you look at the way that Marco Rosa wants to play, and I've said this multiple times, you have you have two eights, basically, Dehoud and Bellingham playing as sixes. You have Cams as Royce and Brandt playing as wingers. You have strikers like Mollen playing as, as wingers. You have a very, very attacking fullbacks playing in a back four. You have the pace that's just not there. There's so many cracks. This team really desperately needs to be torn apart and rebuilt. And Sewell is not the answer to all that, but he's a huge step in the right direction. I think he's a player that can come in here, get some leadership, but there's also the fact that they're trying to re-sign Manuel Kanji. He's on a transfer till 2023. So I think that there's a good opportunity or, or maybe a potential reasoning that they went after Nicolas Sula, not only as a statement, but the fact that there's a there's a chance that they could lose a Kanji for nothing in 2023. So if they're going to re-sign, re-sign him, they want to do it now. And if they're not able to, there's a chance that they could probably sell him this summer. And then Nicolas Sula comes in and there's probably going to be a little bit more work to do. If it was me, I would give the manager, make a decision on Marco Rosa. Is he your guy? Yes or no. And then give the man what he needs to play his system. So he's not playing seven positions that just aren't natural to these players. We need, we desperately need a proper winger. We need a number six, maybe another number six, proper fullbacks, maybe even an extra center back. There's still a lot of work, but Sula is is one of the best in the league and knowing how much Bayern and Dortmund like to sign within the Bundesliga, this is a really, really good step in the right direction. But if this is the only step they're going to make, it's going to be a lot of the same next season. A lot more needs to be done. It was also a free transfer, right? So that's, um, 
that's always a win. You're not spending money so they can get some of the resources and transfer budget to sign an extra player there on defense when they get someone for free. But Adrian, you wanted to say something too? Well, I just wanted to sort of ask Josh what he thinks is really going on because Marco Royce had those interesting quotes after the match where he said, when he was asked about what went wrong against Leverkusen, he said, because we don't implement the instructions. We prepared for the game for two weeks. We always say the same things, but we also have to bring them onto the pitch. We didn't manage that today. So if this is happening time and time again, do you think that there's still great support for Marco Rosa or do you think that that's sort of waning a little bit in the squad and that's why we're seeing these players not being able to implement what he's trying to get them to do? I, I think it's it's a little bit of both. I, I, I think Marco Rosa has had a lot of leeway this season given all the injuries given a lot of the trouble because I haven't seen in my life a club go through these type of injury concerns and it's been hard to try to implement what he wants to do knowing that each and every match day there's at least three four changes but maybe what Marco Rossi is probably trying to say now is listen we have the players back we are relatively healthy yes Holland wasn't in there but we had a game plan that we rehearsed that we wanted to implement. And it's like a, the second it comes out on the pitch, no one follows. So I would almost, I would almost see that there's some shots going at the players that they're not willing to, to give in to what the manager wants to do. Guerrero is a good example. I, I, I think he's one of the best fullbacks in, in world football, but he's a very attacking. He said it himself. I want to play left wing back. And if the instructions, just for example, I'm not saying this is, this is it, but this could be a, a potential example is that Marco Rosa wants him to sit back a little bit, but he's not willing to, and he keeps pushing forward and leaving the back line very, very open. There's there's opportunities that Marco, Ro- Marco Royce is probably looking around, like we're not listening to what Marco Rosa is saying. So either Marco Rosa isn't doing his job and can't get these guys to buy in, or the guys aren't just willing to buy in. But regardless, I, I think it's you can't just put it just on Marco Rosa. It's, it's a little bit on everyone. And it's why I just think there needs to be a huge overhaul because this manager, what he wants to style of football he wants to play doesn't match the personnel or vice versa. All right, so we're going to move on here most likely to the last topic of this this podcast, and this will be one that I didn't watch this game. I just went through what happened. I know Dani Alves got a red card following the the Brazilian. I usually follow Brazilians and Americans, so I know that led to Dest finally getting an opportunity, and we'll probably get another one now that they got a, that Dani got a red card. But Barcelona defeated Atletico Madrid 4-2. It looks like Simeone might be declined. We'll let you guys talk about that. If anyone watched the game, I know Adrian and Josh, you both follow through with it. Wants to take it from here first. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just more of the same from Diego Simeone when it comes to playing at Camp Nou. I don't think that he's ever gotten a win at Camp Nou and that continues. And it also is the continuation of Atletico Madrid's just decline this season following that championship winning season last season. So it was difficult to watch from an Atletico point of view. But if we look at, you know, Barcelona and some of their signings they made this winter, they didn't necessarily seem like they would be a fit. Like we talked about this on the last podcast that you were there for it was well, Filippo, you know, bringing in Aubameyang, bringing in Adama Traore, a guy who didn't really have a final ball at Wolves. Um, You know, he had one goal contribution in the first, what was it, five months of the season before making the switch over to Barcelona. Notoriously bad at crossing and his final ball is just not being there. So to have him come on and just shred that right side, or I guess the left side of Atletico's defense, and then get a cross into Gavi. And Gavi, of all people, if Gavi is winning headers in the box... That's a huge system issue for Atletico Madrid and their formerly great defense. And another thing, before I pass it on to Josh here to get his thoughts, was 
Jan Oblak is having quite the decline this season, which is extremely uncharacteristic of him. He was up there as one of the top three goalkeepers in the world for many, many, many years, and he's just not making saves that he used to make anymore. So there's certainly a system issue in the back. It feels like Simeone each season has sort of lost some of his lieutenants, if you will, you know, losing the the uh, Sauls, losing, you know, all of the def- defenders that were back there in the back line, holding it down for him. And it's just getting worse and worse. Plus the attack isn't clicking no matter how many signings they make in the attack, bringing in Rodrigo DePaul, bringing in Jean Felix, bringing in Mateo Cunha. Nothing seems to be working right now. And it's certainly, it's, it's hard to watch, isn't it, Josh? It really is. But and the, the one issue, because I, I, I'm a big fan, Diego Simeone is with Klopp probably my favorite manager, even though he plays the ugliest style of football. But I just I just love so much about him. But it was almost like he was just panicking in this this match. He he was switching systems left, right, and center. He wasn't able to adapt. I mean, Hermoso had a shocker of a match. He got yanked on the 55th minute. And Traore was doing the exact same thing. I don't know how many times. It was, it's a step over take it on and cross and Hermoso just could not deal with it he was making all these little tactical changes to try to to switch it but he wasn't doing the simple things and allowing the width which is what I mean the funny thing is is that there was a a little back and forth between Xavi Hernandez and Diego Simeone what the way that these two like to play football and Xavi outmatched him in this match He, he truly truly did and and unfortunately right now he's just not finding the pieces to get together he was able to put it together last season even though it was almost like no one in the Liga wanted to win, and then it just seemed like Atletico did with, with Barca and, and Madrid slipping towards the end. Chao Felix is having a really tough go. I I would have expected Angel Correa to start up front, probably with Suarez. It's just the, the tactical battle is something he used to be so, so good at, at drilling out results, making it stubborn, making it hard, not conceding four goals. <laughs> Uh, there's a lot of question marks there. There, there really is. I, I do agree that Oblak slipping. He kind of is reminding me a little bit of when uh, De Gea went through that that rough spell because I, I still think that Oblak's a, a sensational keeper. But considering how he was playing to what he's playing now, there's there's definitely a little bit of concerns. But Simeone is resilient, and I wouldn't give up on Atletico just yet. But I think there's some big decision he needs to make, and he's to find a way to get his best eleven. And something that in the past I thought he was so good at doing is he had a regular eleven. He's Atletico have an, a, a notoriously small squad. He puts a lot of minutes and a lot of trust into into his preferred eleven. But it's just this year, this season's very apparent. He doesn't know what his best eleven is. He doesn't know exactly how he wants to play, and I think that's really affecting the way that he wants to approach the match as well as his players. I want to add one thing just to what you guys just said. So last season when he won La Liga, Atletico Madrid allowed 25 goals in 38 games. Right now, we're 22 games only into the season, so we're a little bit past half. They have already allowed 30, so that's five more goals than they have allowed the entire last season. My only question to you, um, and I know Adrian wants to jump in and say something as well, is, yeah... It's tough to say he's declining considering he just won La Liga last season. And yeah, we can talk about all we want, how the other teams weren't as good, but he still got 86 points, which if you look at previous seasons, we had champions with 87, 93, 86. So it's been around that. So his campaign was a championship campaign. So my question is, is he actually declining or is it just a bad season, a hiccup? I mean, it could be a bad season or a hiccup, but there has been, you know, last season was a bit of a, 
a bit of an outlier because prior to that, it wasn't his greatest performance. Um, and last season, you know, everyone's going to say, well, Real Madrid and Barcelona were crap. That's the only reason why they won. And there might be some truth to that. But he almost fumbled it last season as well. There was a point in February where they could have won a game and gone 13 points clear but they failed to do so. And they just continued to allow Real Madrid to continue to put the pressure on them. And it actually went to the final day to decide the title where it wasn't clear whether, you know, if Atletico didn't get a result and Real Madrid won, it could have gone in the other direction. So this decline has sort of been happening since about a year ago. For the last year, I would say they've been starting to go down a little bit. And I don't know whether it's Simeone just, it's not working anymore. He's been there for a very long time. He's been there for a decade and he's done amazing things for that club. He's brought them to heights that they hadn't really been to before. And so he's always going to get that benefit of the doubt. But you do start to wonder if, you know, with that, that turnover of players, of all these guys that he used to have in the club that were, that were like I said, his sort of his generals on the pitch. Um, does his style really resonate with these players? Like, you know, Josh mentioned Zhuang Felix. I hate to say that I told you so at the beginning with that signing when I said that Zhuang Felix is never going to be a fit at Atletico Madrid. What is he doing? He needs to go somewhere else. But these are the kind of signings that just aren't really working. It's hard to think of a signing recently for Atletico Madrid that has really been like an instant hit, that has really just taken to the ground running and excelled. And it feels like they need someone new in there, someone that really matches the sort of attacking talent that they have now. Because Simeone, when you're getting the best out of him, he's not playing that sort of free-flowing attacking football that you'd want to see with this current crop of players. But, um, you know, I think that, we should also give some love to FC Barcelona and what Xavi has done because when he took over, he was behind Atletico Madrid. Now, like I think it's two or three months on that since he's been there, November, December, January. Yeah, three months on. Um, they've overtaken Atletico Madrid. And, you know, bringing in signings like a Dani Alves, for example, one that a lot of people, we were all sort of scratching our heads at. This guy's 38. What can he really offer? But at 38 years old, he's playing at Camp Nou in La Liga and he gets an assist. He gets a goal. Of course, he gets that stupid red card, but little things like this, we all thought that he was just going to be an off-the-pitch sort of signing, someone who can be a leader in the dressing room, someone who can make sure that everyone's reaching those standards in training, sort of be the, uh, <laughs> again, I'm going to use the term lieutenant in the dressing room for Chavi. but he's offering far more than that. And he's making these things work, Chavi. He's making Adama Traore work in this setting. He's not necessarily a tiki-taka, FC Barcelona kind of player that you would imagine Chavi would want to employ that sort of style. He can't really bring that. But he made it work. Ferran Torres, another good signing. He got an assist. You know, so I think we got to give a lot of credit to Xavi and Barcelona right now because they're certainly building towards maybe not what we would expect a Xavi Barcelona team would look like, but he's making it work. And I think that that's all that really matters in the end. Yeah, so that does it for this episode. I don't know if you guys want to add any extra thoughts. Anyone has anything to say before I close it here? Thanks for hosting. Was I a good host? Was I better than Manuel? I need to know. I think that we can't say that you were better than Manuel, but I think that it was a, it was a great job, man. You did an excellent job and it was a successful little loan spell as host. So I congratulate you and you'll definitely could be made, uh, maybe not permanent, but will be considered for the future for sure. So yeah, was this a loan with an option to buy? Yeah, loan with option to buy and we're considering the option and, um, you know, definitely a squad player that we're going to be in the starting 11 for sure. It's like the those MLS um, 18-month loans that they did, the deals they love to do this winter. 18-month loan with an option to buy. But yes, everyone, uh, thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for tuning in. Don't forget to drop a review 
it really helps us a lot or don't i can't force you to do that but if you kindly could it would be very helpful thank you very much and see you guys soon Thank you.